morning. Open up your copy of God's Word to John chapter 1. This morning we will be looking at verses 29 through 34, which can be found on page 886 in the Pew Bible. John chapter 1, starting in verse 29, page 886. Question, what do you love to look at? What do you have no problem staring at for an extended period of time? Or in the words of our text, what do you behold? There was a study released a couple of weeks ago on the average screen time for Americans. How many hours a day uh, does the average American look at or stare at a screen? The survey found that the typical American spends four hours and 30 minutes a day watching TV, four hours and 33 minutes a day looking at a smartphone, over three hours using some sort of gaming device, and then nearly five hours on a laptop. Now, I'm skeptical of those numbers. I don't know how all that is possible. It's not. I'm just relaying the findings of the survey. I'm not vouching for the survey. But if you add that up, that means that the average American, according to this survey, is spending an insane 17 hours and nine minutes staring at a screen each day, which leaves only six hours and 51 minutes total. I guess most of that goes to sleep. And those numbers, the study then goes on to claim, are pre-pandemic. It, goes, it says then that during the pandemic, Americans are spending over 19 of the 24 hours in a day looking at some screen. Again, I think it's probably not the soundest of studies. They've made some math decisions. They've drawn some conclusions that aren't quite correct. But, but the main point stands. Uh, for many or for most Americans, for many or most of you in this room, the answer to what do you love to look at well, would be a screen. We don't have to buy the 17 hours and 9 minutes a day number to know that most of us look at screens a lot, right? far more than we should. There was another recent study that claimed that the number was 13 hours a day. That seems more reasonable than 17. But if you think about it, that's still insane for many of us. That means that the screens, much of it taken up by news and social media, gets over 90 hours of our week. Church, for many or most of us, gets maybe an hour or two. A week. And I don't have to draw out the implications of this. It's hard for two to compete with 90. We just sort of uh, accepted the fact that we're too busy to do certain things, right? We confess that we uh, struggle to find the time to read the Bible and we all nod our heads in complicit understanding. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so hard. We make jokes about how hard it is to stick to a plan to read the Bible in a year when it ends up average, requiring about 10 minutes a day. Total. That's it. To, to read the whole Bible. In a year, 10 minutes we say we don't have while we give these 13 hours to screens and media and various things. Again, what are you looking at? What do you love to look at? What really grabs and gets hold of your attention? Just run through your day yesterday and your agenda. What did you do? What did you spend your time doing? What did you look at? What did you think about? Well, what John wants to do in this text is to direct your attention to where it needs to be. John invites you to look and live, to behold and to believe and then to become. Because, quite simply, you become what you behold. Right? You look like what you look at. And so in our text, John the witness says, look, the Lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Don't look at me. Look at him. Don't look at the screen. Look at the Savior. If last week was summed up with the word speak, this week could be summed up with the word 
Look. And if you're ever going to do last week, speak, then you first got to do this week. Look. And our main idea is simple and clear. It's a command. This is an imperative look at the land. My desire is to break that down into three components, three separate commands that are going to help us understand this verse and this passage. What are you looking at? John says, look at the lamb. What does it mean to look at the lamb? Well, to understand that, let's break it down. Uh, There are three things in our text, three S's. The first one we're going to see is the call and the command to look at your sin. And then second, to use that as a means to then redirect your attention and look at the Savior. And three, well, it should be look at the Spirit, uh, but we're really not going to get much past verse 29. I didn't want to shove a three-minute rushed look at the Spirit towards the end of the sermon. So we're going to just pick that back up um, next week. Uh, this, This is just too important of a verse. One of the most important, profound verses in the whole of Scripture. So we're going to just basically focus on verse 29 this morning, and then we'll continue on uh, next week. Uh, So sin, Savior, Spirit, those three together are going to help us to understand what it means to behold the Lamb, to look at the Lamb that gives life. Uh, So what are you looking at? Let's read our text and see where John directs that look. I'm going to read the whole passage, though we will be focusing on verse 29. I'm just going to read verses 29 through 34, focusing on verse 29. But pay attention, because this is what God wants to say to you today. The next day, he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. If you would bow with me, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes. We ask that you would help us to listen and in listening to look. We pray that you would, uh, by your spirit, uh, through this word, direct our gaze and our attention to your son, uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, Father, our attention has been on so many things uh, this week. Our attention, even right now, is uh, so easily directed towards many other things. I pray that you would help us to focus. I pray that you would help us to look at Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help us to understand this word that reveals to us so wonderfully the identity and the activity of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would help me as I seek to direct those looks not to myself, uh, not to my own ability, um, Father, but to Jesus. I pray along with John uh, that I would uh, decrease so that he can increase. Father, we ask that you would simply show us Jesus. Help us to see him. Help us to love him. Father, help us now, we pray, in the preaching and the hearing of your word. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, point number one is quite simply, look at your sin. Look at the text. We've got an important uh, first in our text. Uh, 29 verses in to this gospel, we get the first use of the word sin. We've discussed darkness introduced in verse 5. We've seen his own world not knowing its own maker in verse 10. We've seen his own people not receiving their own Messiah in verse 11. But we haven't yet seen sin, or at least the word sin. 
So before you can behold the lamb, you've got to see your sin. Verse 29, is, is, it's the climax of John's confession. Right? This is the point of his preaching. Behold the Lamb. He'll say it again next week down in verse 36. Behold the Lamb. Again, but what does it mean? Why a Lamb? It, it, well, it's largely defined by what he says that Lamb does. So to understand the Lamb's identity, you've got to understand his activity. And John specifically gives us that activity. Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Right, so no sin, no need for the lamb. No seeing your own sin, no seeing your own need for the lamb. So we've got to start here. Look at your sin. Again, what does that mean? What is sin? Theologians like big fancy words. I like to use them every now and then to try and trick you into believing that I'm intelligent and that you should keep paying me. When, when theologians talk about the doctrine of sin, they talk about hamartiology. Right? That just sounds obnoxious and unnecessary. Right? What a word that is. Well, that word actually comes from our text. Right? The Greek word for sin is hamartia. So hamartiology is simply the study of sin. It's harmatia. Getting my pronunciations wrong. Why would anyone? I see Henry over here. Why would anyone, though, want to study sin? Well, again, it's quite simple. It's so that we can see and appreciate our need for a solution and a savior to that sin. If I have terminal cancer and don't know that I have terminal cancer, I'm not going to know to take any steps to solve my cancer problem. In the same way, if I have terminal sin and don't know it, I'm not going to take any steps to solve my sin problem. But if I know that I have cancer that is going to kill me, well, then I'm going to do anything that I can to solve that cancer problem. In the same way, you would think that if I know that I have a sin that is going to kill me, that I'm going to do anything I can to solve that sin problem. All right, so we've got to at least briefly look at sin before we can look at the lamb. You've probably heard before that sin means to miss the mark. Yeah, that's not all that sin is, but that idea does come from this word in our text. Uh, the great Greek poet Homer in the Iliad and the Odyssey uses this same word almost a hundred times in reference to, to throwing spears that, that miss their target, that, that miss their mark. And so Paul seems to be giving this sense in Romans 3.23 when he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, so, so the concept of sin is far more comprehensive than just missing the mark, but it's a good and helpful place to start. Sin is more than just doing some bad things. Sin, as we'll see, is a failure to conform. It, it is a failure to live up to what we were created for, well, which is what? Well, you know, according to Paul there, it's, it's the glory of God, which is what? Well, the glory of God is the, the showing and the shining of his perfect holiness, of his goodness and his godness. We were created for that, to be like that, to be like him. So sin is our, our conscious, rebellious uh, rejection of what God created us to be, like him, good and, and happy and fulfilled and in relationship. It's to fall short of that calling and that standard. I like the definition given in question 14 of the Shorter Catechism, which simply says, what is sin? Sin is disobeying or not conforming to God's law in any way. Right? That's easy. Sin is disobeying or not conforming to God's law in any way. It's simply a failure to conform to God's law. Again, even today, we struggle with this simple definition because we live in a culture 
and increasingly even a Christian culture that is no fan of the concept of law. But biblically, over and over and over again, it cannot be denied. This is one of the things, this is one of the things that most drives me crazy about much theology today, is that we don't get this basic concept that law is good and that law is given to us for our good. There's nothing wrong with the law. How many people teach the law in a way that comes across as, hey, man, this law is so messed up, we need to be done with that law. No, that's not what Jesus is doing. The law is never the problem. We are the problem. The law is an expression of the perfect character and nature of the law giver. The law is given not to constrain our freedom or our fun, but it's for our good to show us where that goodness is found in fellowship with him. So in failing to conform to God's law, what we are doing simply is failing to conform to God himself. We're not just rejecting rules. We are rejecting relationship. We are not just failing to conform to some law. We are failing to conform to some person, right? The person, God himself, perfect in glory, goodness, and grace. When we sin, we reject him. This is the human problem, not poverty. Not pandemic, not racism, not cultural chaos, not political collapse. All of those are the fruit of which this is the root. Sin is our problem. Man's rejection of God is man's problem. And so when John the witness says up in verse 23 that he is a voice crying, make straight the way of the Lord. When we saw the first word out of John's mouth in Matthew 3, 2 is repent. When John is first described in Mark 1, 4 with the words, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then in the very next verse, we see those people baptized, confessing their sins. We see that John's whole message, his whole witness starts with this witness towards our sinfulness. Before he says, look at the lamb, he says, look at your sin." And look at verse 29 again. Look at how it starts. It starts off here with the next day he saw Jesus coming. Maybe I keep pulling this out because we keep running out of time. This is the next day. and There's going to be another day and another day in three days. It seems like maybe what John is doing is paralleling what we're getting here the first seven days of Jesus's ministry. Arguably, maybe connected to John 1.1 and it's connected to Genesis 1 where we have the first seven days of the creation week. Well, here we're seeing the beginning of the first seven days of the new creation. Maybe we'll try to walk through that and make that case next week. But so the next day, we're the day after what we looked at last week in verses 19 through 28. Remember in those verses, we saw this delegation from the religious leaders come to question John because John's already been preaching for a while. He's been calling for a repentance from sin. He's causing a stir. He's drawing a crowd. This is how he has been preparing the way of the Lord. Here's how he makes the paths straight by calling for the repentance of sins. So he doesn't specifically preach the Savior until verse 29, after he's been preaching sin for a long time. Look down at verse 32. We're going to come back to this next week. John, the author, keeps connecting this word to John, the witness. It says, and John bore witness. I saw, past tense, the spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. John is bearing witness to what he saw when he baptized Jesus. If you read and you're paying attention, you'll notice that the baptism of Jesus is nowhere recorded in this gospel. It is recorded in all three of the other Gospels. Again, we'll look at it next week. But for now, it seems that the timeline is that John has been preaching for a long time. Jesus has come to John to be baptized. 
And then Jesus goes immediately into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. It seems most likely that this, our account, is happening after all that. It is likely that Jesus is now returning from that temptation some 40 days later. John had already met him. John had baptized him. Wilderness. He defeats Satan. Jesus comes back to now to begin his public ministry. And so this 40 days after the baptism of John, Jesus testifies to what he witnessed at the baptism of Jesus. I mean, and then he makes this climactic declaration when he sees Jesus for the second time. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the point quite simply here at the beginning is that John has been calling the people to look at their sin for a long time before he calls them to look specifically at the Savior. You need to see your need. You need to see your sin. Do you know? Have you felt? Are you painfully and personally aware of the fact that you are a sinner? Because you are. And you know that you are. We are all somewhat aware of it. But we also then work really hard to try and hide it and to convince others and ourselves that we're not. We distract ourselves to death to ignore it. We amuse ourselves to death to try and deny it. We work ourselves to death trying to make up for it. But we all know that it's there. We all know that there's something wrong with us deep down. It's why everyone feels guilty. It's why everyone carries around a sense of falling short or of failing to conform or to live up to something. It's because deep down we all know that we were created for something else, right? We were created for more. We were created for goodness and glory for God himself. But we all of us, as we will read in a moment, have like sheep gone astray. And we all of us know it. We just look around. There is no denying the existence of sin and evil. Just look at the last year. Just look at two Wednesdays ago. Just look at your own heart. It's, it's there. Are you aware? Do you know that you have offended and rejected the good and glorious God of the universe? Do you know that you were created for perfect fellowship and relationship with him and you have wrecked and ruined it? Do you know and believe that you will never find Happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction, all the things that you're seeking in the 13 to 17 hours of screen time. You'll never find it in yourself or in the things of the world as long as you remain separated by your sin from the one in whom all those things are found. Even believers, brothers and sisters, do we know that we have a serious sin problem? Look at your sin. Right? We too little contemplate the nature of sin. In part, that's probably because we have been so anesthetized to it. I can't pronounce that word. We are so surrounded by it and we give ourselves to the entertainment of the world that frequently celebrates that sin and exists to seek to normalize that sin. And so that we then start to listen to all the screens that we look at and we slowly start to think, well, you know, maybe sin isn't all that bad. Oh, but look, they're so happy. They, it seems like they love each other. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's not that bad. No, Christian, study sin. Read, I recommended it a while ago, read Ralph Venning's The Sinfulness of Sin. Like, go get that book. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of pages written just about sin. That's not encouraging you to read it, but you should read it. Here's a snippet. Right, do you think of sin like this? He writes this. Listen, this is masterful. I wish we could write like this today. He says, in short, 
Sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, the contempt of his love. It is the upbraiding of his providence, the scoff of his promise, the reproach of his wisdom. It opposes and exalts itself above God so that it acts as God, sitting in the temple of God, showing itself as if it were God. And that's why right before that, he writes that sin goes about to un-God God. And so is by some of the ancients called deicidium, deicidium, which means God murder. That's a great way to start thinking about sin. Do you think of sin as attempted God murder? Right? Stuck still in the midst of this terrible pandemic, this plague, we need to understand that sin, as Venin calls it when he first writes this book, in the midst of the great plague in London, he titles this book, The Plague of Plagues. As people are dying physically from the plague, he wants to draw their attention to three, the great plague, which is the plague of sin. Because the first plague results only in physical death. Terrible and tragic, yes. But the second results in spiritual, eternal death. Infinitely more terrible and tragic. Look and feel the weight of your sin. Stare at it. Meditate on it. Know it. This is how John's preaching starts. This is how our preaching must Start. We must start with sin. So point number one is quite simply, look at your sin. But thankfully, we don't stop there. We don't look at our sin as an end, but as a means to an end. We look at our sin so that we can then look for a solution to that sin, so that we can then look for and look at the only Savior from that sin. Point number two, look at the Savior. This is what John is telling us. This is his message. In verses 19 through 28, he says, it's, it's not me, it's not me, it's not me. And in verse 29, he turns and says, look, it's him, it's him. Here's the one. Look at him. Behold, we should bring that word back, right? Behold the Lamb. One of the most beautiful and beloved titles of our Savior. Behold the Lamb of God. But what does it mean? Right, we got to unpack that. Why a Lamb... It's weird. And then how can a lamb do anything to take away sin? Oh, good question. Not surprisingly, scholars argue about this. Scholars can argue about anything. Uh, critical scholars especially like to argue that John can't mean what he so obviously seems to me. But I think he does. Remember, one of the main things we've been seeing in our study of Revelation on Thursdays. Revelation is a hard book, so we laid out some important principles of interpretation. The most important being Revelation is full of the Old Testament, right? To understand the book of Revelation, you've got to understand all the Old Testament language and imagery that John is using. Well, John, the author of that book, is the same John who is the author of this book. And so we could expect that there would be much Old Testament behind what John writes here as well. And we can expect that when John the witness uses the word lamb as the kind of the last great prophet, the transitional figure from Old Testament to new, we could expect that he too is doing so with the Old Testament as his and so, if we want to know what it means that Jesus is the Lamb, we simply have to look back. Where else do we see a Lamb? Well, let's, let's run through our Old Testament for a minute, because it's everywhere. You could make the case, this is probably overstating it, but you could make the case that this is the theme of the whole Old Testament. Let's start with the first use of the word Lamb in the whole Bible. Where is it? You know where it is? 
Genesis 22, we just looked at it. Turn to Genesis 22. You can find that on page 16. Studied this a couple of months ago. First use of the word lamb in the Bible. Hopefully I don't have to review too much. We spent a year here. Uh, God has promised Abraham a son. Remember, it's all about the, state, the, Abraham, the Abrahamic narrative. It's all about the promises of God. It's all about the covenant that God is making with Abraham to bring about a blessing to all the nations. And he has promised to do that through giving Abraham a son. Well, Abraham has waited a long time for that son. We saw him face many obstacles and much difficulty. God has promised that through this son shall come a whole people. And through you, through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The son Isaac is finally born. And then in Genesis 22, God says to Abraham, go kill your son. Go and sacrifice your son on the mount that I will show you. <laughs> on the way to worship. God through sacrifice. Remember the sacrifice worship connection we looked at? But they're on the way to do it. They're used to this. I'm sure Isaac has gone with his father again and again to worship God through sacrifice. But on the way, Isaac notices the fire and he notices the wood. But then he wonders in verse 7 of Genesis 22. Here it is. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Where is the lamb? There's the first lamb in the Bible. Abraham responds in verse 8 with what could be the theme of the Old Testament? The scriptures. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. You see, God then stays Abraham's hand before the sacrifice of his son. And then Abraham sees a ram. Some people are really bothered by the fact that where's the lamb? And then all of a sudden there's a ram. Okay. A ram's a sheep. It's a male lamb. And verse 13 says that he took the ram and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. That verse 13 is so important. Instead of his son. That is, in the place of his son as a substitute for his son. So there's the first lambs in the Bible. We next see lambs in the strange story with Jacob and Laban. In Genesis 30, which I'm going to skip because I don't understand that story yet. I've got to figure that story out before we come back to it. But then the next use of the word lamb after Genesis 30 comes in Exodus chapter 12. Turn to Exodus chapter 12, page 53. You know this story. Israel is enslaved in Egypt. God is going to rescue and deliver his people. He sends these plagues to demonstrate his power over Pharaoh and the, the false gods of Egypt. And then we get to the, the climactic 10th plague. Every firstborn in the land will die. Unless, verse 3, chapter 12, verse 3, unless they take a lamb, right, the Passover lamb, kill it, and then paint their doorposts with the blood of that lamb. Then the angel of death, when he comes through to execute the firstborn in all the land, would then pass over those homes in whom the blood of the lamb has been painted because there has already been a death. The lamb has already died in the place of the firstborn so that the firstborn can live. There's just so much more. Later, look at Exodus 29. In Exodus 29, God is giving his law. He's, he's laying out the system of worship, which revolves largely around sacrifice. Look at verse 28 of Exodus 29. Exodus 29 and verse uh, 28. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb, 
you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Verse 42, it shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations. Every day, day and night, this is given about 14, 12 to 1400 years before John comes and makes his declaration. Here is Moses coming and saying, every single day, a lamb in the morning, a lamb in the evening, a lamb in the morning, a lamb in the evening. Every single day, another lamb slaughtered, another lamb slaughtered. Thousands upon thousands of lambs. Blood every single day. Death everywhere. Then we get to the book of Leviticus, and Leviticus just lays all of this out in even more bloody graphic detail. What's going on? Why all the lambs? Why all the blood? And there's a lot more that we could look at, but we're always short on time. Well, to understand kind of the, the true genesis of this, we'd have to go all the way back again to Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, where you remember that God had warned his people. He has graciously given them his law, not to constrain them, but to bless them. He has basically said, well, just disobey me and you will die. Disobey me and you will die. For the day you eat of this tree, you will surely die. This is why Paul will say thousands of years later that the wages of sin is death in Romans 6, 23. So Paul says, what you deserve, what I deserve, right? Like you earn your paycheck at work. You work hard for it. This is the result. This is what you deserve. Paul says that what you earn, what you work for and deserve with your sin is yeah, because as we've seen, any sin as any failure to conform to God's law, to failure to conform to God himself, therefore it is a, a rebellion against and a rejection of the good God who created all things, the God who is the source of life, the God who is life himself. So it's, it's, it's simple. You reject the God of life, you then logically get death. It's, it's that simple. But then we see this interesting thing in Genesis 3, 21. I don't want to read too much into it. I'm not entirely sure. But you know the story. They have sinned. They deserve death. But they do not yet physically die. And so then right before they are cast out of the garden, symbolizing their separation uh, from their uh, spiritual fellowship uh, with God, their spiritual death, it says, though, right before that, that God made for them garments of skin and clothed them. Garments of skin and clothed them. He covered them. Those garments of skin come from animals. That means there must have been death. That means an animal must have died for them to be clothed. And so maybe that maybe it's just a hint. I don't want to be too definitive, but maybe that's a hint of what's going to come. And then we start to see this idea progressively developed and unwrapped throughout the Old Testament. Sin demands death. You should die. But in the midst of all the rules for sacrifices, we read this important verse in Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you, the blood, on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. That verse really explains what's going on with the sacrifices. At the very beginning, in Leviticus 1.4, we read that before an animal was offered up in sacrifice, it says, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. You see, sin demands death. All have sinned. 
all deserve death. But what we are seeing here is the beautiful yet brutal, the glorious yet graphic system that God has set up to save us from our sin. And that system is sacrifice. That system is substitution. In placing their hands on the head of the animal, they were symbolically identifying with the animal. It was as if your sin and the death that you owed for that sin was being transferred to the animal. And then instead of you dying for your sin, it dies for your sin in your place. Sin demands death. The life is in the blood. The shedding of that blood then is symbolic of death. And therefore, God gave his people these animals and their blood to stand in their place to symbolically pay their death penalty so that there could be atonement, payment, reconciliation. That's what is represented by the Lamb. The sacrificial lamb whose blood was shed in the place of sinners for the forgiveness of sins. You can't read the Old Testament and then get to John's declaration in John 1.29 and not understand what he is talking about and what he's referencing. He's referencing all of that. But then common sense, right, were you to get to the end, the question, Isaac's question is still just kind of running through and is not answered. At the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, where, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? Because if you just think about it, it's, it's common sense. Well, this sheep's just an animal. Right? You know, like, people don't like, people judge you if you're not an animal person. I'm sorry, I'm not an animal person, but I'm okay. But, but we think and we, we, we understand it's just an animal. It's not a person. They're not on the same level of of value. They're not created in the the image and the likeness of God. So how can an animal truly stand in the place of a person? How how can the shedding of the blood of a goat or a sheep pay for the sins of a person? It can't. Hebrews 10.4 tells us that. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the the system is simply a symbol. It's a, a pointer. It's a temporary placeholder. Because God is teaching his people something. He's going to great lengths to teach them this something. He is showing us something. He wants us to see and not be able to deny how terrible sin is. We often equate, I think, going to church with Old Testament saints going to the temple. It's not the same. The temple is just, the point of the temple is blood and death. You're just surrounded by death. A priest is not a pastor. I'm very thankful for that. The priest's job was to kill animals and to spread their blood. On things. It was bloody. It was smelly. It was dirty. God is trying to demonstrate to us look how terrible sin is. Look at all the blood. Look at all the death. This is what your sin deserves. He wants his people surrounded by reminders of the sin that rejects him and separates from them. So even in the whole system, God is saying our first point look at your sin is what the whole system practically screams. But again, more importantly, God is doing something else. Because God is, he's preparing his people for something. He's he's pointing forward and he's preparing his people for, better said, someone. And so then you start to keep reading and you start to get these hints. You start to get these indicators. You end up somewhere like Isaiah 53, which is, of course, where you have to go in this text. Go to Isaiah 53, page 614. And you're just reading and you're seeing all the sin. You're seeing all the death. You're seeing the people fail again and again and again. And the death and the judgment again. And it's just something's not working. And so you get to Isaiah 53. All of a sudden you're reading about a person. 
You're, you're reading about this individual, this man, this one called the servant of the Lord. And we read in verse 6 of Isaiah 53 that we have all like sheep gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But, and, the Lord has laid on him, a person, the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And so Isaiah tells us about this man that will be like a lamb, saying our iniquity, same thing, our sin, same thing, will be laid on him. And so then we jump back up to verses 4 and 5, and we keep reading, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Okay, notice the he for our exchange. Notice the pronouns in that passage. He pierced for our transgression. He crushed for our iniquities. Him, chastisement, us, peace, his wounds, we healed. It's substitution. This man who would be like a lamb. And so when John the witness cries out upon seeing Jesus after the baptism, after the spirit, after his defeat of Satan, when he cries out, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It has to be all of that that is included in his thinking. Again, he may to some degree be speaking better than he knows, but it is all of that that is included in this glorious title of our savior, the lamb of God. Isaac had asked 2,000 years earlier, where is the lamb? And 2,000 years later, John cries out, here he is. He has come. This is the one. The one that all of that was about. The one that all the blood and all the death. Think about it. On that very day, John, the son of a priest, on the very day, not too far away in the temple, lambs are dying, lambs are dying. And John's saying, look, not at the temple, look at this one. The one who we'll see in the next chapter is the temple is also the lamb and is the sacrifice. John is saying this is the one who could actually take away sin by taking on sin and dying for that sin in our place. Jesus the lamb, quite simply, is Jesus our sacrificial substitute. Lamb equals sacrificial substitute. And so a couple, I mean, we've looked at a bunch of Old Testament scriptures, New Testament. We see Paul called Jesus in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. You can just jot these down and go look at them. Christ, our Passover lamb, right? Paul makes the direct connection between Exodus 12 and Jesus. Christ, our Passover lamb. 1 John 3, 5, the same John says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. First Peter, here's Peter, verses 18 through 20. You were ransomed, purchased, bought back from the feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Chapter 2, verse 24, Peter goes on. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, referencing what we just read. By his wounds, you have been healed. In Revelations 5, 5, Revelation 5, 5, this is one of the best scenes, Revelation 4 and 5 in the whole of Scripture, the, the great throne room scene. 
In Revelation 5, 5, Jesus, John hears a voice, and Jesus is announced as the lion of the tribe of Judah. I love that. That's all strong, big lions, kings. But then he turns and he looks in verse 6. He hears the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then he turns and he sees in verse 6. And I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The paradox is masterfully woven in. Lion and lamb standing as though slain. Victorious through death. And in verse 9, the whole of heaven cries out, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is Jesus. And John is begging you, beseeching you in this verse. Look at him. Look at the Savior, the one who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, we don't have time. I don't want to waste our time explaining and unpacking and qualifying that. You do have to understand that rightly. If we're not careful, we could think that that means that everyone will be saved. Right? Because if everyone's sin is taken away, then everyone would be saved. Right? So that cannot be what John means there. Because we know Jesus is very clear elsewhere in this book and throughout the Bible that everywhere is not, everyone is not saved. So that can't be what John is saying. You take away sin, you're saved. Right? So he has to be saying something else. He's talking to the Jews. Remember, we looked at this last week. And so what John is saying is, hey, uh, Jewish people, hey, Israel, this one, this Savior. He's not just the Savior of the Jews, but of everyone, of the nations, Jew and Gentile. He's not saving every individual, but he is saving individuals from every tribe, tongue and people and nation. This is the one, the only one. Because this is the only one who deals with the human problem. This is the only one who takes away sin. Again, and don't forget to read this in verse 29. In, what a, in light of what we looked at for five weeks in verses 1 through 18. That this one, this man Jesus, is also God. And so that makes this the best and most amazing thing that has ever happened. Man rejects God. Man deserves to die. God comes for man. And in Jesus Christ, God dies. That's the gospel. Uh, again, the, the classic quote, I try not to use it too much, but I just think it's so profound. Uh, so it's been a while, so I'll use it again. The classic quote uh, comes from John Stott's The, the Cross of Christ. Uh, puts it like this. Pay attention. It's, it's, I think it's profound. He, he says this. The biblical gospel of atonement. Right. So how we're made one with God. The biblical gospel of atonement is of God satisfying himself by substituting himself for us. The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both point number one, sin, and point number two, salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone in our sin. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone in Jesus Christ's salvation. That's, that's brilliant. That's the gospel. It's not stop being brilliant. It's, it's God's beauty and brilliance. You deserve to die for your sin. But Jonathan, look. Look at what God has done. God has provided a death for you. God has provided his own son for you. So God satisfies himself, his, his justice, by substituting himself. 
In our sin, we try to be God. We try to substitute ourselves for God. This is the highest of crimes. No, no, no. You're not God. I'll be God. This is cosmic treason. But in response, in salvation, God then comes in and substitutes himself for us. We sinfully tried to put ourselves in God's place, and God then graciously puts himself in our place. The gospel is a gospel of substitution. God in Jesus Christ coming to die for us, his people, in our place so that we might be forgiven and so that we might live and be restored to perfect fellowship with him. Look, look at the lamb. Do you love him? Do you see the beauty of what he has done? It's quite simple. It's, it's look and live. Behold him and then believe in him. It is faith's sight of the Savior that brings salvation. That's what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's beholding the glory of the Lord that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. It's beholding the glory of, Lord, of the Lord by the grace of God that we are saved and born again. By the grace of God, our eyes are opened to Jesus that we will then look and live. Is that your application? It's look and live. This is what happened to Charles Spurgeon. We quote him a lot. Um, one of the greatest preachers to have ever lived. Plus, he's the most famous Reformed Baptist to ever live. Right? So we're going to quote this prince of preachers regularly, probably too much. But how did this guy get, how did he get started? How did he get saved? How was he rescued from his sin? Well, he famously tells the story of when he was 15. This is in the, the 19th century. Uh, he, he's trying to get to church in a snowstorm, and he, he can't make it to the church that he's trying to get to. And so he just stops and stumbles into this kind of little hole-in-the-wall church uh, kind of on a side street, this little Methodist church. And there are about a dozen people in there. Right? The pastor of the church couldn't make it because of the snowstorm. Uh, so a layman, they're there, there's no pastor. So this layman, he says, I don't think he's a tailor or a shoemaker, Spurgeon said, he steps up at the last minute and he fills the pulpit. I love this, this is what Spurgeon writes. He goes, he, here's Spurgeon's account of what happens. He says, now it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. I love that. This man was really stupid. So he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And here's, let me read just for a second of Spurgeon's account of, of that life-changing and then England-changing and world-changing experience as God works through Spurgeon. Spurgeon goes on and says, He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The, pre the preacher began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple in text. Indeed, it says, look. Now look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, said he in broad Essex. I can't obviously do the accent. Many on ye are looking to yourselves. It's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort. In yourselves. No, look at him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you say, oh, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. 
Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. When he had gone to about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me in the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. I wish I was bold enough to do that. Who could I I look at today and say, you look very miserable? Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However... It was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you, young man, will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, you man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. Spurgeon goes on to say, I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked and I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. I love accounts of conversion. Look, he says, what a charming word. He was dead when he walked into that room and he walked out alive. And his life was changed and the world was changed through him. Christian, church, whoever's in here, what are you looking at? I mean, honestly, what are you really looking at? What are you staring at? What gets your time and attention and your look of love? John is simply calling us here to stare at the Savior of the world, to look and to live. See your sin and then see the only one who can save you from that sin and believe. How do you do it? You just start by asking for help. Pray that the Spirit, I wish, I'm sorry we didn't get to the Spirit. Pray that the Spirit would help you to stare at the Savior. Start with prayer. And then church, Christian, non-believers, I'm talking to everyone. We all need to do this. Be intentional about your priorities. Carve out and create time for this. We see him in his word. You cannot look at him without his word. We laugh and joke. Oh, you know, I'm already behind on my thing. I can't get my 10 minutes to read. Guys, life is where he is. It's, It's there. It's not just a book. It's living and active and it communicates to us this lamb who saves sinners. So read it. And listen to it and think about it and write about it and talk about it and pray about it. Find time to be quiet and to be still. Shut off the stupid screen for a while. Try a little less social media, a little less TV. Ask for help and find time. Ask for help not only from the Spirit, right? Start with God, but then turn to your brother and sister. Look around you. Uh, If you have no idea what to do, talk to somebody. Ask them, what is he talking about? What do you do? How do you read the Bible? How do you pray? How do you spend 
your time. Come talk to me or Mike. We'd love to talk with you. Reach out to an older godly saint who can come alongside you. Get help. Get and come to church, church. Uh, two hours cannot beat 90 hours. Now come to prayer Tuesday night. I am just, I'm convicted and concerned that we don't care about prayer. We just, we don't. And I'm, I'm the chief of sinners. Um, church, we pray. Because pray is our confession of our need and our helplessness and of our latching on and holding on to him, the only one um, who can give us life, the one whom apart from we can do nothing. And so God's people pray. Come to prayer. Come to Bible study. Do something informal. Get together with someone and just pray and read. I've been so encouraged. Miss Lydia can't come to church uh, right now. Lydia, we miss you. I'm sorry. I miss you. I want you to be here. Sorry for putting you on the spot. Um, but she and Yvonne, uh, every single day, are reading a devotional and spending 15 to 20 to 30 minutes talking to each other through God's word. That's ministry. That's, that's service. That's looking and living together with the body of saints. Uh, that, that, that's so encouraging. Get help. Uh, you must set aside everything else to focus on this most important of things. Do everything that you can to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Knowing that you cannot do it on your own, you cannot do it apart from the Spirit, but cry out to Him, ask Him for His help, and then do something. Get to work beholding the Lamb. The point, life is found in Him. And death is apart. Uh, death is only found apart from Him. And this is the heart of John's witness. This is the whole message. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the worlds. Church, you know, we talked about it last week. What do we do? What are we about? We preach Christ crucified. Why? Again, because of what we talked about last week. Because people without Jesus go to hell. And that includes some of you. Some of you in this room do not know Jesus. Uh, some of you, if that is not uh, reconciled and redeemed and dealt with through Jesus Christ, you will go to hell. And that should burden our hearts. And that should give us great sadness. And that should give us great motivation to live for something else other than ourselves and our own comfort and our own pleasure. We preach Christ crucified because we believe that God's word is clear that everyone without Jesus goes to hell. Why? Because as we've seen, the wages of sin is death. Why? Because God is life and sin is the rejection of him. And so here in our text is the solution. It's the only solution. The Savior who takes away sin. Do you know him? If not, look and live. If you do, the people around you, do they know that you know him? Do they know that you know the only one who can save them from their sins? Look and live, live, and then speak. Again, listen to the famous words from uh, 19th century Scottish uh, minister Robert Murray McShane. Um, this is, I'll close with this. Um, he died at age 29. It's convicting. Uh, he ministered in the town of Dundee. It's actually the same town that our missionary uh, ministers in, not too far uh, down the street. Andrew Matheson is a pastor there. Um, here's uh, one of McShane's most famous lines. Uh, I'll close with this. He writes this. The heart is deceitful above all things. Look at your sin. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Oh, he is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace. And for all sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love. And repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ. 
and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart. And so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. The church, yes, uh, look at your sin. But again, only then to direct your look at your Savior. For every look itself, take ten looks at Jesus Christ. Church, he is altogether lovely. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, your word is wonderful because your word reveals to us our beloved lamb who takes away our sins. Father, help your word to be my focus and, and what works. Father, not my, my, my words, not my uh, pleading, not my father attempts, whatever they are. Father, help your word to be central. I ask that you would show us Jesus Christ uh, by your spirit through this word. I pray that you would grab our attention and our gaze and our looks and that you would set them upon him. Father, forgive us for how apathetic we are towards the things of Jesus. Father, help us to see him as altogether lovely. Father, help us to live uh, for this one who died uh, for us. Um, I pray that you would transform us into a body of believers um, who love you and who love each other and who desire to serve you and to serve um, each other with our whole lives. And Father, that only comes as we see Jesus Christ. So, Father, help us to see him. And we do pray for anyone in here who does not know Jesus, who has not seen him, who has not moved from death to life yet. And Father, we pray that you would save him. Father, we pray that you would grant them repentance, uh, turning away from their sin, repenting, to grant them faith. Father, turning to Jesus Christ and giving themselves entirely to him. Father, please save sinners through your word, through the ministry of us at Woodside as individuals and us corporately as, as a church. Father, we pray that for uh, Saturday as we will gather again to talk with those in our neighborhood and to invite people to church, but more importantly, to, to tell them about Jesus. Father, help us to be your witnesses. Father, help us to look and then, and then to speak, Lord. Father, we need your help. I thank you for your grace and your help even in this last couple of minutes. We pray that you would be honored and glorified. We pray that we would be edified. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.